Amen. Thank you, sister. The Bible's approach to wisdom is very simply understood, truthfully. The Bible's approach to wisdom is simply understood, yet it is not always so easily applied in our lives. We can understand it. It's harder to apply it. The the genre of wisdom literature, like you just read in the scriptures, um, includes, but is not limited to, Ecclesiastes. So books like Job and the Song of Solomon and Proverbs. New Testament books like James. And of course, what we're studying this morning together, the book of Ecclesiastes, are in this section of scripture, uh, they share a genre um, called wisdom. Wisdom literature. The thing about wisdom literature in the Bible that makes it easy to understand is the reality that you need it. You need wisdom. You need to learn from many of the things you just heard read. Wisdom literature that falls into the hands of a faithful Christian, it's like a good tool on the shelf of a wood carver or a carpenter. Now, I'm not an expert, and I don't know much about wood carving and carpentry, but I imagine a career of carving and woodworking includes many specific tools that are designed to do one specific purpose. And a good wood carver assesses the wood that he works with. He looks at it, and then he then you know imagines and knows, looking at it, what it's going to look like. And then he grabs a specific tool that expresses that need that he sees in the wood. And so he reaches for the tool and he applies it to his work. Wisdom literature, understood by a saint, by the, by the believer, is simple, is simple like that. And it's, instead of wood, it's for all of life. And it's the ability to be able to reach to the shelf and grab what needs to be applied to your life. So when a daunting list of things like house chores or deadlines that would stress you out or an impossible amount of work appears. A wise person will reach for the right tool in God's wisdom and then apply it. So maybe they will grab, you know, a teaching about sluggard to offset their laziness. Or maybe they grab joy to offset duty. Or they grab hope to offset despair. Prayer to offset anxiety. And then they apply it. Or worse, when like tragedy strikes, you're standing in the ER or maybe in the kitchen with the phone pressed to your ear, you've just gotten that call, it's the worst news, a wise person will reach to the right tool of belief, belief in God's wisdom, belief that God is for them, not against them. It's easily understood. We need God. We need wisdom in this life if we're going to live and make it through it. However, as I said, wisdom literature is not always so easily applied in our lives. What appears simple on the surface in God's wisdom, things like fear God, keep God's commandments, trust in God's plan over your own, don't be a lazy person, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. All those things are, you know, sound simple on the surface, but think about them for a minute. They're never simply applied in our lives. That pile of laundry always bothers us. The deadline does stress us out. The impossible amount of work seems crazy to handle. Our loved ones do pass away and they stay gone and it hurts. Our job can be lost. We can fail. Oftentimes, it's like knowing the tool you need, but reaching for it only to find it's not there. 
You're searching for the tool. Oftentimes, that's how life is. And the way wisdom literature works is, is it says you need to put these things in your life so you can grab them quickly. So you need to organize them and have them there because if they're not and you go to reach for them, things are really bad. Things start to unravel. Now, what's amazing about wisdom literature is it actually has a built-in mechanism uh, that matches a mechanism in your own heart that God has made you. So God made you in his image. He made you uh, a creature in his image. That image has been marred by sin. And yet in you is something similar that's in wisdom literature. It's this idea of building a habit of repetition. You love order because you're an orderly creature put in order by God and breathed life into you. And though sin would try to disorder your life, you crave order. And one of the things you'll see in wisdom literature over and over again is repetition. Repetition. It's like weather, like a storm and a big rain that pounds on sedimentary rock. Eventually, it will change that rock. If you remember the rock cycle. And it'll send downstream all those particles, right? And the face of that rock will eventually smooth out over weather. That's how wisdom literature pounds on the human heart. And it makes you aware of things in your heart. Your heart's like that. And everyone saved by God's grace knows the power of God's truth being pounded into them. So wisdom literature does that. So it gives you the right tools and then hits you with them over and over again. And the Bible comes beside you in the form of wisdom to speak directly to you in the way that I would argue you already speak to yourself. The Bible wants to take God's wisdom, like in Ecclesiastes, and put it in your heart so that when you start to think things in the moment, you start to think like God. You don't think like yourself. Because listen to me, you spend a lot of time in your head. I know, because I spend a lot of time in my head. So for 10 chapters, the preacher has unpacked the idea of what is wisdom under the sun. And what you just heard read by our sister reading to you is that you got to weigh your life when it comes to wisdom. And all of these verses are just kind of him now unloading on you after his arguments that he's made a lot of statements about how wise people live. Wise people in God's economy, they are like the carpenter that I described. They do reach to the shelf and they actually can apply some things from the tools that God has revealed to them. And he wants to show that there is wisdom in this life. Now he's going to acknowledge the limit of it and we'll look at that at the end. But right here at the beginning, we need to talk and study wisdom for everybody. Because that's really what this chapter is about. Today we study them the way they're presented and enjoy them the way that you and I should enjoy a thunderstorm. Here's the idea about a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Rain falls on everyone. So if you go out there and it's raining right now and you're a total jerk, you're getting wet. And if it's raining right now and you go out there and you're the nicest person on earth, you're getting wet. Both of you are experiencing something the same way, water on you, regardless of what you are. And so today, a lot of what we're going to study is the rain of God falling on the just and the unjust. Those who aren't Christians, who don't believe in God, will hear in this sermon that there are things that are just naturally wise, that God has ordered and patterned and just lessened some common sense that you can take with you when you go out of here, and it's really helpful. So whether you like it or not, or you plan for it, you don't control the weather. The weather happens, and that's a lot how this wisdom is. 
That's the kind of presentation the preacher is doing before he gives his final conclusions at the end of this book. One last thing by introduction, because this is so strange to just list all these Proverbs, but it's not. You need to understand, for all these chapters before, he's examined things. We'll even see today a final assumption he's made about evil. But before, so, so he's made all these teachings, and now he is unloading. It's like, hey, I've been trying to figure out this life. Is this life meaning anything? And he's, I've searched all these ways. And so before we get to the final conclusions of what really gives our life meaning, here's some things I learned along the way, and he's given them to us. And that's the sermon. <laughs> Wisdom for all, verses 8 through 20, we'll look at. And then we'll come back to 5 through 7 and see that there is a problem for all as well. Thirdly, we'll look at a solution for all. In Christ. Let's do it. Let's talk about wisdom for all. Let's break down some of these proverbs you see here. I promise they're fun and engaging and interesting. You know, um, I went to college in Oklahoma and I met this older uh, brother. His name was Christian Taves. And Christian is, uh, was a drummer and was in the band and the little group that we were in when we were studying the Bible together in college. And he had, he had a sister, and he had a younger brother who ended up coming. And I met all these kids. They're all the same family. And they're just similar. And I remember one day, uh, you know, Christian's father, uh, I learned it from another person but who knew Christian's father really well. But, but this, his father, um, they raised, he raised his kids studying the Proverbs. So they studied the Proverbs all the time. He would have them memorize it. He would have them read it. He wanted his children to live in wisdom. And I would tell you, as someone who lived around them, you could tell these three children were, though they're different than me and artistic and they have all these other things, they have this similar flair the way they think and talk. And you can tell that Proverbs 3.13 maybe affected them. Proverbs 3.13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, wisdom, is better than, a gain, uh, than silver. And her profit is better than gold. gold. So, Wisdom is better than silver and gold, and when you get more of wisdom, you can be rich in this life. That's the hope that all of us aspire to. And so what the preacher has done here is he has given wisdom for all, and he's done it in his arsenal, a web of categories. And so in verses 8 through 20, he addresses seven topics, seven topics that we're going to look at together under wisdom for all. Think of this as the extras that he has found along the way, okay? It's like a catalog of wisdom, that's true and helpful. First one is safety and work. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. Safety and work is the first topic he addresses. Verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, excuse me, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. All of these proverbs strike at the same idea of realizing that anything can happen in the most common of work activities. So we must be wise. We must be alert at all times. The man digging for a living or doing demolition work or cutting stones or out felling trees, he faces a real danger in his life every day. And he needs wisdom mentioned here to avoid the issues that are presented by each one. 
If you've ever worked with someone on a job of any kind of physical labor and, and that is stupid and careless, you know the real risk that these verses are trying to paint a picture of. Um, this type of person won't stop to sharpen the axe, as the preacher just says. Why? Because they're in a hurry to get the job done. Only to realize that when the dull blade ricochets off of the wood and it bounces into their leg or their gut or their head, now they're just in a hurry to get hurt. Right? That's the picture that's painted here. It's tragic, but it's a reality. He's saying that there's, there's wisdom in, in realizing that you know, one who's working with walls needs to realize in ancient, ancient Israel that every once in a while, there's a snake hiding in that wall. Right? Be careful as you do your job. Don't fall into the monotony of your work and, and, and ignore the risk. Look, tragedies of someone dying from some human error always have a way of, of undermining, undermining the human error. And it gets repeated over and over again. And that's a problem. The preacher says, that's a problem that me and you face. It's foolishness. People get lazy in their work and then people get hurt. Now, personal examples abound for me and for you, I'm sure. Um, some of them probably humorous to one person, while the, uh, they would be very sensitive and you know, painful to another. Ultimately, there's nothing funny about this kind of foolishness that he's talking about here. You know why? Because this kind of foolishness will land you at the bottom of a pit. It'll land you dying, dying by a poisonous bite or crushed under stones and trees. Let me give you an example of what the preacher's talking about. It wasn't even four years ago that a 15-year-old boy died in my hometown, Hudson, Texas. He was helping his family move, and he was attempting to hold down a mattress that was in the back of a pickup truck. When the air uh, got underneath it as he drove, it threw him, causing injuries that led to his death. Shocked the whole community. And yet, me and my wife were driving the other day, and I had a mini panic attack on a country road we were driving on. When I drove past a driveway of a, of a, and with a young boy, couldn't have been, but maybe 15 years old, in the back of a truck on top of a mattress holding it down. And not even four years ago, somebody just up the way from him not even 10 minutes drive away, had died in that exact same way. Now, I contemplated turning around and waving them down, but instead I just prayed for peace. And thank God I haven't heard a news story. This was months ago, and I believe that this young man cheated death. But the point I'm making is folly will repeat itself. And so you, if you are wise, will make note of the things around you that pose a threat, and you will not treat them lightly. You'll work differently every day when you go into a plant or you go into physical labor or you go into that car. You'll put your seatbelt on if you're wise. Why? Because you know that in a moment, safety can be compromised. Wisdom and safety. Second topic, number two, credibility. Look at verse 11. The preacher weighs in on credibility. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Sounds confusing. We don't know much about snake charming, right? So we got we to do some work here. Uh, the King James actually uses the word babbler to describe charmer there at the end. I like that uh, because I think it's a good, a good idea that's being painted here. You see, uh, it uses the word babbler to describe the snake charmer to show that the bite of the snake 
is like the babbler. They're one and the same, okay? A snake biting you is a lot like a babbler. In other words, the charmer is like a babbler or someone who is all talk but no gain. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Okay? And all of that, there's this advantage they have to kind of wooing you to think that they have it. That's advantageous to them. Let me give you an example. You ever been in the mall? Big malls? And you walk past those guys who are so bold that they'll actually grab your hand and like put some lotion on it, right? You know what I'm talking about? You ever experienced this? Um, you should punch them in the face for being so bold as to touch you, but you don't. And next thing you know, 10 minutes later, you've listened to their awesome spiel and then you're buying $50 worth of lotion that they got from China for $2 and you look like a fool walking away thinking, what in the world did I just do? And what is on my hand, right? You know what happened? The snake didn't bite you. The charmer was able to do his work. But wisdom will say to that person, hey, always buy American. (laughs) I mean, wisdom will say, hey, you should watch what they say and watch what they say they're about because credibility matters. And so you go get yourself bit by the snake because you wanted to see the charmer. Well, guess what? That's no advantage to him. But when it is an advantage to the babbler, to the one who wants to run your mouth, guess what they'll do? They'll sell you a car that won't work, right? They'll rob your house blind before you know it. How? Because they were, they were able to talk the talk with you. And so the preacher's saying, hey, be wise. Know what is credible and what is not. Third topic, discretion. Especially in speech. But discretion. Look at verses 12 through 15. I'll read it again. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. But the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. What's happening here? This section focuses intensely on the speech and the action of fools. Okay, their words are a bunch of W's. You ready? They are worthless words. They're wasted words, wounding words. They're warped words, and they're wayward words. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, the talk of the fool explained here is wisdom says you need discretion. And you need to realize that a foolish man does not have discretion. Think about verse 12. You ever met somebody? Like the lips of a fool, consuming themselves, their words only point to their own worthlessness. They talk as if there's value, but you don't hear anything. You just realize they're just affirming over and over again that they don't have any real contribution to make. That's how their words are. It consumes themselves. They become worthless. I'll give you an example. Every single president ever, from conservative to liberal, has has, uh, gone down in history for eating some sort of crow, as they say. Having to go back on their their promises. You see, fools over-promise, and then they under-deliver. Let me give you just two examples. Woodrow Wilson, campaign slogan, 1916. He kept us out of the war. That was the promise. That was the words. We need Woodrow because he kept us out of the war. And then 29 days after being sworn, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. How about uh, another example, Herbert Hoover. You know what his campaign slogan in 1928 was? 1928, a chicken in every pot and a car in the backyard to boot. 
You vote, you, you vote for, you know, Mr. Hoover, you're going to have chicken in the pot and a car in the backyard to boot. And then, eight months later, into his term, the stock market crashed, the Great Depression began. Right? Where was the chicken? Where was the cars? Everyone was asking. You got to be slow in your speech or you may just qualify, you know, uh, the foolishness that consumes you. You can... You can pull some of these from your own memory. Maybe a matching English proverb that I'll clean up is, you know, you write checks that can't be cashed, right? You must be careful. The fool's words are worthless. They're wasted and they're wounding as well. Look in verse 13. A lack of discretion is known in the first words of the fool. So they speak and they just waste words. They speak too much. And so not only do they waste words, but worse than that, their end becomes, it can, it can be great hurt for somebody who's listening. Foolish madness. You see the, the string of those two words? That kind of underlines the hurt that the preacher's been talking about this whole time in this book, Under the Sun. There's this foolish madness that comes. And man, that's where the fool's words end, right? They are wasted and they are wounding. They're also warped. Look at verse 14. The fool's words are spoken so much with no clarity. They, they bring no real relief to the situation. Worse than that, no one can tell somebody who's right in their own eyes what is and is not going to happen. You know why? Because they know everything. You ever met these people? We say in discipleship at RBC, you can't teach someone the truths and commands to Jesus who's not teachable. They won't listen. Okay? Such a person, if they continue in unteachableness, gets to a place where their own words are their favorite and they begin to warp them. They become sinful, self-condemned. And so we want to be sensitive to realize discipleship requires a great level of teachableness and that requires opened ears, not a mouth. The fool, he just keeps talking. His words are warped. The fool's words also lead you wayward. Look at verse 15. Okay, it studies his work. It says the fool's work there. What does it do? If it produces anything at all, it just produces a waywardness. I mean, anyone he discusses with, and especially himself, he's wayward. He's misguided. Wisdom can show us the discretion we need. That's the point here, discretion in speech and conduct. I think maybe the most famous quote that has been attributed to so many people, I didn't even know who to quote about this, but this summarizes this really well. You ever heard this? Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. <laughs> That's what's happening here. Number four, leadership. Look at verse 16 and 17. Another topic the preacher weighs in on. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. But happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So first in the negative, there's this land with a partying child king, okay? He's a big partier. He's a celebrity. He throws the wildest ragers. He's drunk. He wakes up in the morning, which is supposed to be a productive time for kings. And what does he do? Give me another strong drink. Give me another one, all right? Let's keep going. Don't, don't turn the music off. Glorifying himself rather than serving people. The, the preacher says, look, there's wisdom in this, right? I mean, even the whole world can see. You do that over and over again, you never actually take care of business, stuff's going to fall apart. Like, how sad, woe to you, who would find hope in leadership like that? You see, the morning time is supposed to be refreshing. 
It's supposed to be the first fruits of a person's day. When they're at their most productive for God and for his own sake, if they're a good king. It's very childish to feast in the mornings. Right? You eat what you're able to give you strength to move on. That's what breakfast is, you know, the most important meal of the day, right? Why? Because it's supposed to send you into some work, not partying. No, there's a right time to feast. It's just not wise to do it in the morning. Which then verse 17, okay, look, in the positive now, when you have a king that is as royal as the child king was, no doubt, right? Still royal. But notice, he's described as a son of nobility. Man, we've lost this word in English and it's sad. Because, you know, the monarchy and us coming to, like, you know, be America, and you know, 1776 and all that. Which I'm awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm a patriot. But, like, nobility as it existed in, in, you know, our father, you know, motherlands in England for, you know, years. And the monarchy that still reigns with Elizabeth. There's this idea of nobility that, that English speakers like me and you, we understood that we've lost. But there is this kind of blessed patience this burden of the people that really leads a good leader. And it's seen in the way they live and conduct themselves before others. And so the preacher is saying, look, you want a happy land? Make sure that the, the king is a son of nobility. That they do feast. Check it out. They do feast, right? There is a time to party. But it's not when we're at war or when famine's striking or when there's a great you know, sacrifice even in leadership that needs to be made. No, instead, like the time to feast is when things have gone right because of good leadership, because of hard work. Notice the feast includes, uh, you know, the wine, uh, you know, period. Um, you know, and there, there are two options to enjoy things like good uh, drink and good food, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the topic here is drunkenness. But I want you to see that even in a rightly ordered kingdom, it's wise to take the good gifts of drink and food and to use them. But for what purpose? Strength. Strength. You see, uh, wine as rest is a gift from God. And as we said earlier in this sermon series, and as we'll have to say again here in a minute... Wine as risk, where it's reckless, is not safe. It doesn't build up strength. But here, insert this idea. He's not a drunkard. So he's partaking, but he's not drunk. Option two is what? Well, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's a, it's a king who is able to lead. He's not, he's, not, he's not hindered at all. It's good leadership. Knowing when to rest. Knowing when to eat. Number five. Laziness. Look at verse 18. Preacher weighs in on being lazy. Through sloth, through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Friend and brother and sister in Christ, hear me today. Don't be lazy. Don't, don't be lazy. Don't play around with sloth and slothfulness. Don't neglect your duties. Even if your duties seem monotonous, what you'll do is, is you'll prevent disaster if you'll work hard. That's the idea here. I mean, think about the roof. Your roof, when it's you know, sinking in, that thing's going to cave and kill you if you don't realize how serious it is. I mean, a leaking house may not seem like much now, but eventually a leaking house becomes no house. Or it becomes a house ridded with asbestos and nasty mold that will leak out of the walls into your lungs and kill you. I mean, there is a serious warning, right? Now, we're not there yet, 
We're not, we're not to the point. It's, it's actually through this type of incompetence that someone destroys themselves slowly. Sloth is not just the guy playing video games all the time in our culture as you envision him. Hear me out. It's also the person who only relies on others when the despair of last-minute problems is upon them. It's also the person, if it's not that person, you know, not doing anything until all of a sudden it's a problem and now they need help. If it's not that, it's also the person who's so busy and working so hard that they think they've earned the right to then be lazy somewhere else. Whatever way you cut it, the wisdom here is don't choose slothfulness. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Seek the better rest. Wisdom identifies laziness as a problem. Number six, wealth's usefulness. He's all over the place, guys, right? But it's beautiful. Uh, wealth's usefulness. Look at verse 19. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Uh, my personal favorite. This is my personal favorite. So just tell you that. The preacher, he's speaking in overstatement. He's overstating on purpose, okay? Because too often this seems very true. Can we just be honest? I mean, is there a benefit of bread and wine that's real and you get it immediately? Absolutely, right? But it has limits, doesn't it? Bread and wine have limits, but having enough money, it seems, leaves you limitless. I mean, money is is good, right? I mean, if you have a lot of it, you're good to go. Let me explain it some more. So bread, it's the idea of, of dinner with friends. I mean, what an amazing thing. Like I love a good fire pit and some conversation with brothers or, or time spent in a home eating a meal and enjoying it, right? Or going to, your, going to your parents' house when they cook like that thing you always ate growing up, man. You smell it. You, it gets in you and you love it, right? There's a lot of benefit in that, okay? And, and yet, you know what happens? It has its end, doesn't it? I mean, the, the dinner party closes down. You have to go home because your kids are waking up the next day. Or, you know, it has obvious limits when you go home. I mean, the, the food's good, but you're with your parents, right? It has its limit. What about, you know, wine? He says wine gladdens your life. That may offend you. hope it doesn't because it shouldn't. Because wine, as he's saying, gladdens your life, think of it like a fire. He's saying it can warm your heart. Like what you put into your mouth can have an effect on your heart. They're not disconnected truths. So as good as it tastes on your palate or it smells or it reminds you of something that is, you know, ripe and fruitful and good in your life, so it can be in your belly. So it can fix your ailments. That's what Paul told Timothy. Take a little wine with your stomach ailments to help you. Wine not only can do those things, when it makes your cheeks rosy and it makes your heart merry, it can put you in a place of peace. And, and when it's appropriate, it can be a great gift. But when it's not a gift and it becomes something dangerous, it can hurt us. But that's you doing with wine what God never intended it in creating it that you would do. And so let's stick with the good of what this is saying. But remember, we're talking about money, right? The usefulness of wealth. Well, listen. Who really knows the end of what you can have if you just had more money? There's a lot of truth in the, in the reality that if in many of the burdens in this room, if we went around right now and you said, I wish I had money for blank, um, the truth is, is there's a lot of needs and a lot of burdens and a lot of wants that we could probably spend a lot of time talking about. If we just had a little bit more money, things would be a little bit better. That's just true. 
He's speaking an overstatement. Obviously to him, the wise will remember, you can't serve God and money. You can't worship money as a God. You go worship it as a God. You may get as much of it as you need. Guess what, you know, Jack? You're never going to get enough money. And that's Jack in the general sense, not Jack as you in the back row. Okay? <laughs> Sorry. But, but maybe, brother. The truth is you don't, you can't, you got to know its limits. But in a lot of ways, man, wisdom shows wealth is useful. I mean, as does spending your stimulus check, right? So whether you thought the government was right or wrong to give you that stimmy money, you did not think that when you bought said item with it. You did it gladly. Why? Hey, because money's helping me out, man. No matter where it comes from. More money, more problems. Well, listen, the preacher's already said that. See previous sermons. But, you know... His money did get him to a huge throne room with the best stuff after the best parties, right? But there's a balance. But the idea is wealth is useful, guys. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's useful. You know, you can't serve God and money, but in your service to God, money's helpful. That's what he's trying to say, okay? You can't serve God and money, and yet in your service to God, money is helpful. Number seven, slander. Verse 20. Last verse of the passage. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Okay, what's he talking about? Slander here. Look, kings can't read minds. Don't worry about that. Okay, they can't actually read minds. And birds and bats only carry messages to, you know, evil rulers in Lord of the Rings. Okay, it's not a thing elsewhere. Okay. However, what is he getting at? The point is, things we say seem to have a way of getting back around to the people that we did not want them to hear. And Big Brother is always, always listening, it seems like. And so there's a lot of wisdom in realizing that when you live in a monitored world, a world that is constantly watching you, listening to you, hearing you, making note of you, making memory of you, remembering what you stand for and what you fall down to, when that happens over and over again, and those Amazon ads are nailing you every single time you're on your phone, you need to realize there's a good chance that what you think is said behind closed doors is not. It's being used, and it could be used in the future. Wisdom would say that if you're speaking the truth at all times, you have little to worry about in regards to your conscience. But I think the preacher is trying to say, that is true. But there's also prudence in realizing you may have peace in your conscience, but know this, what they have found out that you believe, they may not like. Have all the peace you want, they may come against you. So make sure that you are free from slander. You see, if you won't badmouth the king, you'll submit to him as best you can as to God's glory. You'll find that even when they oppose you, that clear conscience will give you the peace in the midst of persecution. You do the opposite. You, sub, you, you kind of actually go above God in the way you talk about said boss or you talk about said king in a wrong and self-serving way, a self-promoting way that puts you above God's plan to use him in this time. Now you may have walked into a very reckless and dangerous situation. Now the birds have overheard you, right? They've gone and they've told on you. And it will come back to roost, so be wise. Don't slander. Slander has a way of coming back to the person who would backbite. That's the idea here. And so choose wisdom. Now, there you have it. Some wisdom for all. So, all can see benefits in the preacher's catalog 
of wisdom. There's a lot of tools there that he just laid on the shelf for you and I to have. It really is for all of us. But along the way, I think we noticed something, didn't we? We noticed that, to make it clear, you know, we're going to go to the beginning of our passage, but I think we noticed that there's a limit in all of these. And it's right here in our hearts. We would love to not slander. We'd love to be the leaders we're called to be. We would love to manage our money so appropriately that we have wealth, that we enjoy the wine and it's not a bitter drunken thing, that we actually are able to you know, eat our bread and honor God and live in this perfect harmonious picture that's being painted here. But there is a problem. And the preacher has been very honest with us. He'll be honest one more time. Look at verses 5 through 6. This is the very start of our passage. A problem for all. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Evil under the sun. Guys, that's the problem that robs me and you from the wisdom in the truest way. Evil under the sun. By this point, this is one of the most obvious statements and themes in the book. Okay, in chapter 3, we saw that it was evil, uh, that in the place of righteousness there was wickedness. In in chapter 5, there was a grievous evil that he saw. It was riches that were kept to somebody for their own hurt. In chapter 6, there was an evil under the sun lying heavy on mankind. You know what it was? God gives wealth, he gives possession and honor to someone, but then God doesn't give him the pleasure to enjoy it. That was an evil and grievous thing. And in chapter 9, if you'll just turn over a page, you can see verse 3, where it was an evil done under the sun. That the same event happens to everybody. Death. Our hearts are full of the main problem. And it just keeps manifesting itself all the time. You know what all of these statements, which is the last one in the book, about evil under the sun have in common? They call a spade a spade. Now, they're all diverse topics of foolishness. You acting like, you know, you have it in control. Your life is yours, that you can do whatever you want. Okay, you trying to do what you do on your own will land you in one of the five. But what they all have in common is they point out in various different ways the injustice under the sun, sin. They call your attention to something about evil. And they want you to see that as you study evil as it's out there and always encroaching on you, that lesson you're supposed to be learning about evil being out there is actually supposed to be pointing you to look within. Because that foolish child king that you would condemn, you do not realize how much you actually have in common with him. That's why in verse 7, he's able to say from his throne that as he sits there understanding Solomonic, right? He's like Solomon sitting there. He could see that a slave could be on his throne. Just like a or on his horse. Just like he is. Because there's really no distinction. Although there's a horrible enslavement of distinction between them and their class and the way the world understands it, when we were to rip all that away and look at their hearts, it's the same problem that they possess. The link of evil in this context is that no one is righteous, no, not one. The highest king, the lowliest servant, no one is righteous, no, not one. Verse 7 affirms this. Wisdom comes from God and God shows no partiality. You see, if you're going to get true wisdom above the sun, you got to run to the end sometimes of the limits of wisdom under it. Earthly wisdom has great benefit, but it has its limits. And you will find it. 
The moment you try to stop being a slanderer in your own strength, you will realize to your own discouragement that it won't be but a couple weeks and you will slander again. You try to climb out of the throes of addiction. You know, some people say, you know, drug addicts are the, are the, are the most worthless people. They have no drive. That's not true. Take away their drugs. What do they turn into? They turn into people that are striving and craving for something to cram inside themselves. Take away any struggle you have, or better yet, try to fix it yourself and do something about your own addiction in your own strength, in your own right. Grab as much earthly wisdom as you can. You know what happens? You will be forced back to these conclusions the preacher's bringing you to. I see a great evil in my life. I'm incapable. Foolishness makes no discrimination. Okay? It doesn't. It does not discriminate. Folly doesn't promise to stay within different classes or social statuses. So just because some elitist group could come up with some way of, of, of locating themselves away from riffraff, which is kind of the idea of verse 7 again there, right? Princes walking on the ground like slaves. He's seen this reversal, this uprising that's happened. But first it starts with, even when somebody thinks they can put themselves, listen, if you can get the American dream and just kind of have yourself be this successful in your job, this fruitful in your life, this type of family, this type of order, if you can get there, you'll separate yourself from them and things will be okay. It's a lie. Right? And on the flip side of that, this verse 7 is trying to say, and even when that gets reversed, like, I don't know, like Marxism, or like, you know, let's take the, the low and like put them over the elite and switch spots because the low will be there. Guess what? When that, when that slave's on the horse or he's walking on, uh, on the ground, guess what? He's just like that ruler that was up there, and he will find that out. The, the, the funniest and clearest way I've ever seen this is in, the, is in Christopher Nolan's final Batman, the third one, where you've got the worst of criminals, like the psychotic, mental, uh, scarecrow villain. And they've set up this, like the whole town's in ruin, like uh, this uprising has happened and now the criminals are in charge. And up on the highest throne, condemning all of the, the people out to banishment on ice, sits Scarecrow. And, he's, and it's just this audacious scene where you realize, huh, the lowest would think that when they get to the highest that they'll be different. They're no different. It's just evil repackaged, right? So even in every good person, there's this combination of dust. We're a dust collective. That's what we are. And we've been made from dust and we'll go back to dust. And the preacher has tried to say, are you going to deal with the limits? He's invited us to deal with the limits. Sure, wisdom is for all. It's true. Okay? Get as much of it as you can. But know this. There's a problem for all of us. It's depravity. Isaiah 64.6 says it like this. We've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Man, even our good is like that. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. They take us away. Wisdom for all shows us that there's a problem for all. Which culminates in our conclusion, a solution for all the solution for all is Christ. Solution that we, uh, we have that allows us to actually use earthly wisdom is an assurance that can assure our hearts before God that we don't face the problem of evil the same way we once did as lost souls. You know, often people say that the gospel is Jesus. I just don't think that's true. I think it's poorly said. Instead, the gospel, it's the good news about Jesus. But it is news. 
It is news that lets you, as Jesus himself would say, have ears to hear and eyes to see and faith in your heart to trust him for yourself. That's what God did when he brought wisdom above the sun and he brought it to the earth. Let me define it. The solution to find in Christ is to see that Christ, the God-man, was greater than anyone who ever walked the earth. If the wisdom of this sermon has been great for you, if you've heard this sermon, you're like, yeah, I need that, I need that, give me all that. Hear this. In 1 Kings 10, the guy who wrote this, Solomon, he has this visit from a queen. Her name is the Queen of Sheba. Okay? She had heard of the famous wisdom that you're reading right now. She had heard of it. And she had heard about all this pleasure and awesome stuff. And so she comes in verse 2 from Jerusalem. Uh, or she came to Jerusalem to visit Solomon. She brings all this stuff. And she hits him. It says in verse 2, she told him all that was on her mind. You know what Solomon answers her with? All that awesome stuff me and you just read and studied. He tells her everything. And there was nothing in her heart that he couldn't explain. This dude was smart, wise. He literally was able to help this queen. Okay? She then saw that, him, saw all the food on his table, saw all the stuff that was around. And it says in, in, uh, it says in 1 Kings 10, there was no more breath in her. That's how astounding earthly wisdom looked in her eyes as she saw Solomon. Man, don't you want that? Don't you want a type of life that people are like, their breath, their, their just breath is gone when they see how wise you are? Well, listen, you know what? Even when she saw that, she was not seeing. She was seeing a type, a type, a very failed, fallen type. When she looked at Solomon and her breath was taken away, it was a failed type as compared to Christ. Because, you know, in Matthew 12, these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We want to see it. We want to see wisdom. We want to see God. Can you show us? Verse 39 in that chapter, Jesus answered and said this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus is calling himself the Son of God, the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What did Jesus just say? He said the gospel. He would die on Friday, be dead on Saturday, stay in the tomb on Sunday until he came out of it. Three days, three night, belly of the fish, Jesus dies and rises from the grave. Jesus says, that's the sign you get. Now listen to this. At that sign, the men of Nineveh, they're going to rise up at judgment with you, this generation, Jesus is telling them, and, he's, and, and condemn it. Jesus tells these men they're going to be condemned because the people in Jonah's story, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, he says. Behold, he says, something greater than Jonah is here. And then our text, verse 42. Jesus continues. He says, the queen of the south. You know what he's talking about? The queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10. The queen of the south will rise up at the final judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Her breath was taken away by the limit of earthly wisdom, a type pointing to me. The wisdom of God. The solution is defined in Christ. The greatest display of wisdom. But how is it explained? The solution explained is that Christ fixes our problem of 
pain and sin that we all have and actually connects us through the gospel to true wisdom. In other words, you can live according to Christ. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, so like out the gate, talking to the church at Corinth, this is the conclusion. I want you to get this because this is some seriously good stuff. He's writing to this church that is seriously messed up and they are struggling with sin, but he wants to ask them, have they considered Jesus' truth that he is greater than Solomon? Have they really thought about the way God works in wisdom? Have they applied through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, his promised return, but they live now with his spirit? Are they applying it to their lives? Okay, that's what Paul wants them to understand. Pick up in verse 20 if you're following with me. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul's asking some questions. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? And listen, friend, has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Did you, did you hear that? You can't know God through earthly wisdom. Lost people that me and you share the gospel with will not come to know Christ by somehow figuring it out on their own in earthly wisdom. That's what he just said. Since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God. That's a huge, you should, like, that is a massive, like, serious thing. God, the holy God of, of the universe who can't stand sinners, hates sinners, Psalm says, was pleased. What's he pleased with? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know him, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs. Yes, they do. We just dealt with that. And Greeks seek wisdom. Yeah. Pagans love to try to get to God in whatever way they can make up in their mind. But we... We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, you know what it is? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There you have it. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let me admonish you in closing today, church. Paul says in verse 26, consider your calling. Brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. I hope this is true of you as I read this. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. I, it's good for you to think about yourself as low and despised in the world if it means that when you think about you being low and despised, you realize that one stooped into the mess of that loneliness and, and died on behalf of it and said, I love it, give it to me, and I'll make you what you're not, and I'll raise you above those who everyone else says needs to rule. Just trust me. The fact that that is true is amazing. 
So that no human may boast in the presence of God. Why? Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And that's amazing, right? Earthly wisdom has its limits. We have a problem in those limits. And what did God do? He became to us wisdom from Himself. That's beautiful. Wisdom from God becomes righteousness in a person. That's verse 30. Righteousness leads to sanctification in that person's life. That's right now. And then redemption comes. That's also in that verse. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, redemption is the consummation of all things. You see, me and you, we're going to take this here in a minute and put it in our bodies. And just like earthly wisdom, it's going to pass through your digestive tract and you're not going to get the nutrients from it, but for a little bit and then they're going to be gone. But one day you will stand and sit and be at a table where that, those elements are passed out. And, and some miraculous way of, of God himself being there with you, a sinner, no one boasting but boasting only in the Lord, you will realize that the drink and the food are different. They're different. They have eternal significance. And so right now, sanctification points you, but let it point you to redemption. Let it point you to the hope you have. Don't seek a sign. Stop asking God to do stuff in your life if you're asking wrongly. I mean, James, wisdom, would say, you would ask wrongly because your desires are evil. You want to spend them on yourself and what you would do instead of asking them according to the way God would have you do it. So be good at asking not for a sign, not more earthly wisdom. Ask for more of Jesus. Say, God, give me more Jesus. Because if I have more Jesus, doesn't matter what's under the sun, I can get my eyes above it. Only those who are called, who are chosen, who in humility receive the folly of the preached gospel of Jesus Christ are saved. But listen, they do receive it. And they receive God's gracious kindness. Have faith this morning. If you haven't, repent of your sins and look to Christ for the forgiveness of them. Look to Him crucified, buried, and risen. The wisdom of God made manifest for me and you. The solution for all is that we believe. And so as I pray, we're going to uh, sing. Uh, let's, let's respond to our, our invitation to understand wisdom together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for wisdom from above. Christ. Christ, thank You that You are, have become wisdom for us. Lord, we want to be wise. We don't want to chop wood and chop our arm off, God. We don't want to be so foolish as to think that, you know, bread and drink are somehow actually giving us satisfaction, Lord, apart from your giving us satisfaction in our soul. Father, make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Father, you have said, blessed are those who are that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We want your kingdom come. We want your will be done. Father, I pray that as we think through what it means to, to grab wisdom under the sun, Lord, help us to look to Jesus in all of it. Father, whether we're working, Father, whether we're sleeping or rising or, or, or laying down, God, or instructing, Father, will you be wisdom for us? And Father, if there be any poor soul here who has not trusted you, who has not laid aside their ambitions, God, to, to do what they want and surrendered to your will, Lord, may you, by your Spirit, convict them to believe the gospel that has been preached here. Father, help them, we pray. To repent. And God, thank you for this good news of the gospel that we get to sing about now and we get to celebrate together in the Lord's Supper. Father, hear our confession, hear our time in Jesus' name. Amen.